Welcome to another inspirational message from Northwest Church. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information on what your next step may be, please visit our website at northwestchurch.com.au. Thank you. Strange that a large guy has such a small pulpit, really, isn't it? All right, grab your seat. It's good to be here. Thanks for having us. Good to have a net with us, with me. Not with us, with me. Because uh, we finally raised all our children. Who knows, who knows that's an achievement? But uh, we've moved into the next phase of young adult. Because our youngest, Sophie, she's just, she turned 18. She had a big year last year, finished HSC. Uh, she, I could tell there was a boy in our youth that was flirting with her a little bit and uh, so I was keeping a good eye on that don't you worry and uh, I could tell early in the year around about April there was a bit of flirting going on like for example this is one of the things that gave it away which was um, you know when it's Anzac Day where you can get up at 4.30 a.m. for the dawn service right Sophie says I want to go with your dad I'm like you what you want to what have you ever been up at 4.30 in your life yeah, no, no, I want to go. Anyway, we get all the way out to this suburb that we live in, Ostermere, in 20 minutes. And who should rock up but this guy I've been watching flirting <laughs> along. And I'm thinking, she's not here for, to remember the fallen. <laughs> she's planning a future, that girl right there. So and they're giggling with each other and, you know. Anyway, it all went cold. And it turns out that Sophie um, had, and she you know, got strength like a mother, I guess. So it turned out Sophia decided that she's not having a boyfriend till she finishes her HSC until she turns 18. So she did that bit. Two days before her birthday, I get this, what felt like a little sheepish text from this young man, Gareth. Gareth. And uh, Gareth says, uh, Pastor Paul, could I have uh, 10 minutes of your time? I said, no, let's have lunch. Let's have lunch together. <laughs> so we had, so uh, we, there's a sushi place. I love sushi. And uh, so I said, yeah, let's go and have lunch. And I find out later, by the way, he, he orders up sushi. He can't stand sushi. <laughs> right? He ate that thing like there was nothing. He was not, not going to not eat that sushi. Anyway, he was talking to me for about 30 minutes. And I'm like, listen, man. What are, what are we catching up for? Right? It's been 30 minutes and you, we're just having small talk. And he said, oh, well, you know, I just, uh, I'd like to, you know, if I could. He took him a while to get around. He said, I'd just like to take your daughter out on a date. You know? And I said, well, what do you do for a living? <laughs> Which I already knew, by the way, but just stretch it out. He said, oh, I'm studying to be a teacher and I've just got one more year to go, but I'm thinking about taking that last year. I'm thinking about taking two years. Well, why would you do that? Just get it finished. You know? Anyway, they're shocked. The poor boy was shocked. Anyway, the long story short is they've been going out nearly a year, and Annette and I feel like we can. We're just free people. We don't have. We have young adult children now, but I'm starting to realise that you still have to parent young adult children. Do you? Is anybody? Yeah, I feel like I'm spending just as much time looking after them. It's great. Hey, great to be here, and uh, I've had a great uh, nearly 12 months now as being state president. And one of the things I've been enjoying is getting to every region that I can. I think almost except for a few, uh, one or two regions I haven't been to, but most I've been to, and hearing the great stories. I particularly like our country regions. We did some interviews this morning with uh, Phil and Neville and Pam and Renee, and we 
really just talked about what makes their uh, churches significant. And so if you ask me uh, what I can bring to the movement that's different, pretty much everything actually, <laughs> actually I think when I think about it, but one of the things for me is I've always been unnerved by the idea that we measure success one way, and that is by how many people attend your church. I don't really think that's uh, the, it's not a wrong model, but it's not the only model. Nor, uh, nor can you attach your sense of significance to size because that will also mess with you as well. Uh, so what really is, makes you significant is your ability to connect with people who are in your community and you should measure that. Um, you know Lighthouse. Lighthouse is known as a community uh, engaging church. I'm still the national leader for community engagement. And so for us, we measure our reach. We measure how many people we connect to. And even for us, we're medium-sized church. We would reach six times the amount of people during the week as we do on Sundays. But we consider that uh, our size and who we are. So I want to change what we've promoted as significant. That's the first thing. Um, the other thing, which is, was interesting to watch today, uh, I'm very uh, passionate about seeing more women in leadership and more female pastors. And isn't it interesting that already when we appoint a female regional leader that we already had all the pastors becoming credentialed today were females right because that's what it does right so I'm going to give the girls I need to give you a heads up because one of the things that's blocking more female leaders becoming pastors is that typically probably because you thought it's too hard you know nobody really cares nobody notices you haven't gone and got your OMC so I've gone to make a few female leaders regional leaders or uh, higher level leaders, only to find out that constitutionally, because you're not an OMC, I actually can't appoint you or you can't nominate. So let's get ready to change culture. So if you're a pastor, a woman pastor, and you're still in your PMC, then immediately go start the process of getting your OMC, because it doesn't matter how much we want to change culture, I'm limited by our actual constitution. Which means, so, so for example, I think we need, obviously, need women at our national leadership level. But actually, we're not, we can't put anybody into a national leadership level unless they've been on their OMC for three years. So we've got a bit of work to do, right? So that's my encouragement for you to do that. And that's enough of the soapbox I'm going to share with you. Okay. I have been on this journey the last year or so. I uh, had started a thing with my own church uh, Again, I think a little bit differently. I started a theme this year that we've been running all year. Uh, but let me just read you a couple of quotes before you tell you what it is. So Henry Ford, uh, speaking of learning, uh, Henry Ford said, anyone who stops learning is old, whether at age 20 or at age 80. Sounds true. Benjamin Franklin says, tell me and I forget, teach me and I remember, evolve, involve me and I learn. Uh, Jesus, we all know him, uh, Jesus said this in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Will that fit up there? Or, yeah, we might put it up there. Sorry. I thought Daz was getting up to help, but he just walked. Darren was just getting up to walk out. Yeah, I haven't even started being offensive yet. I at least give you 10 minutes without offense before I... Anyway... So here's a thought. I want to speak to you today about unlearning, not learning. Unlearning. I, I, want to, I want you to know why. Because you have been told, most of us have been told or taught, that in order to be successful, you have to add knowledge upon knowledge upon knowledge. And if you do that, 
you, because you gain that knowledge, you'll be successful. I'm going to suggest to you today that in order to be successful, actually, you have to stop, think about what you know, and quite possibly unlearn some things you already know. In order for you to do well at life, you cannot keep adding knowledge upon knowledge. In order to grow, you actually have to subtract knowledge because some of the knowledge, here's the thing, some of the knowledge you have is not good for you. Some of the knowledge you have was good once, but it's not good now. As a movement, some of the knowledge we've had around the way we do things has been good, but it's not good for our future. We just, I just gave an example of that when it comes to women in leadership. It's a bit like we grew up in, Annette's dad was a senior pastor of our church. He's an incredible pastor and leader. We, but Annette's been there her, her whole life. I've been at Lighthouse for, since I was 11 years of age. And so, and we, but we never really had any women pastors. So I would say to Bill, I would say, well, Bill, do we agree with women pastors? He said, yeah. I'm like, oh, great. Well, he agreed, but we never had any. Right? So there's an unlearning process that needs to go on. We can, as a movement, say, of course we believe in women in ministry, but if we don't have any, we don't really believe it. We're just talking about it. And so I think there's a whole lot of things across the landscape of our lives. And I, I know that for us, the idea of learning is something we've always done. And in a way today, you're going to learn, but I've got to help you unlearn first before you learn. So you all know Dr. Carolyn Leaf, right? So Dr. Carolyn Leaf, in case you didn't know, let me give you her credentials. She's a cognitive neuroscientist with a PhD in communication pathology and a BSc in logopedics and audiology. Far out, eh? That's only half of it. She specializes in metacognitive and cognitive neuropsychology. And she says this, I read that because she's qualified. She says this, she says that 75 to 95% of illnesses that plague us today are a direct result of our thought life. What we think about affects us physically and emotionally. In her book, Who Switched Off Your Brain, she says that life experiences create neurological pathways in our brain to which our brain defaults to when an action is required. This is what she says. She is saying that you and I have in our brains pathways or grooves that have been established over a long period of time through your experiences, your education, the things that happened to you that were good, the things that happened to you are bad, and you have created these grooves. So when something similar happens, you act or react without even thinking about it. And because we don't think about it, we believe absolutely that our response, our words, our action to what we talk about absolutely is true and therefore right, but it may not be because it's shaped by something not always healthy, not always good. And I believe that the Bible speaks of unlearning, that in Romans 12.2, the unlearning scripture, if you like, that says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, perfect, pleasing, and perfect. You know, uh, we have a lot of young people, a lot of young adults, and obviously they're always thinking about what's the will of God for their life. Um, I, I think the whole concept 
of worrying about the will of God for your life is overrated. People spend way too much time doing that. I believe as you walk toward God, destiny comes towards you, by the way. So all these people waiting for destiny, God to give them the big plan, and it's really quite mythical, actually. Um, if you stay, the closer you walk with the Lord, He's very capable, by the way, of bringing your destiny to you. But th- there's a preface to it, and that is in order for you, before you learn to know God's will for your life, what you actually have to remember is God wants to first change the way you think. What if it's like this? What if when you receive Jesus, you get a new spirit, as you do, but what if the rest of your life is about your brain? We're also spirit orientated, right? Because in some ways, that language avoids certain things. Like you don't need more spiritual change. You just need to think differently about how you see what God put in your spirit. Not just keep renewing this, I need more of a spirit. No, probably you just need to analyze what you think and ask yourself, is what I think helping me through to my future? Now, of course, when we started this series and we're doing it right across our movement, I found this incredible video called The Backward Bike. And in fact, uh, it's a powerful picture of what it means to have locked in thinking. So let me give you a bit of a preface on it. So what's the saying? Once you learn to ride a bike, you never forget. So here's a guy who takes a bike, he takes it to his friend who's got a little bit of engineering skills, and he reconfigures the bike in a way that when you turn right, the bike goes left. And when you turn left, the bike goes right. And this is a short snippet of a nine-minute video. This is only about three minutes long of what happened when he tried to learn to ride a bike that did the opposite to what his brain told him. Have a look at this, and then we're going to talk about it. I, I can't ride a bike. Let's just like start that again if we anymore. can. Before the... I show you the Hey, it's me, Destin. Welcome back to Smarter Every Day. You've heard people say it's just like riding a bike, meaning it's really easy and you can't forget how to do it, right? But I did something. I did something that damaged my mind. It happened on the streets of Amsterdam, and, and I got really scared, honestly. I, I can't ride a bike like you can anymore. Before I show you the video of what happened, I, I need to tell you the backstory. Like many six-year-olds with a MacGyver mullet, I learned how to ride a bike when I was really young. I had learned a life skill and I was really proud of it. Everything changed though when my friend Barney called me 25 years later. Where I work, the welders are geniuses and they like to play jokes on the engineers. He had a challenge for me. He had built a special bicycle and he wanted me to try to ride it. He had only changed one thing. When you turn the handlebar to the left, the wheel goes to the right. When you turn it to the right, the wheel goes to the left. I thought this would be easy, so I hopped on the bike, ready to demonstrate how quickly I could conquer this. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Destin Salem. First attempt riding the bicycle. I couldn't do it. You can see that I'm laughing, but I'm actually really frustrated. In this moment, I had a really deep revelation. My thinking was in a rut. This bike revealed a very deep truth to me. I had the knowledge of how to operate the bike, but I did not have the understanding. 
Therefore, knowledge is not understanding. Look, I know what you're probably thinking. Destin's probably just an uncoordinated engineer and can't do it. But that's not the case at all. The algorithm that's associated with riding a bike in your brain is just that complicated. Think about it. Downwards force on the pedals, leaning your whole body, pulling and pushing the handlebars, gyroscopic precession in the wheels. Every single force is part of this algorithm. And if you change any one part, it affects the entire control system. I do not make definitive statements that often, but I'm telling you right now, you cannot ride this bicycle. You might think you can, but you can't. I know this because I'm often asked to speak at universities and conferences and I take the bike with me. It's always the same. People think they're going to try some trick or they're just going to power through it. It doesn't work. Your brain cannot handle this. For instance, this guy. I offered him $200 just to ride this bike 10 feet across the stage. Everybody thought he could do it. Oh, no, 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 you didn't understand, you didn't understand. So, this way, <laughs> all right, I'm sick. All right, so, uh, whatever you're in. Yeah. Wait, wait. No, no, you have to keep your feet on. <laughs> Dude, all right, here we go. Just kidding, yeah. Like, you gotta start rolling at least. Go. And go. Oh, God! Keep your feet on the pedal. Go. Go right off. Just keep your feet on the pedals. Once you have a rigid way of thinking in your head, sometimes you cannot change that, even if you want to. <laughs> so here's what I did. It was a personal challenge. I stayed out here in this driveway and I practiced about five minutes every day. My neighbors made fun of me. I had many wrecks, but after eight months, this happened. One day I couldn't ride the bike and the next day I could. It was like I could feel some kind of pathway in my brain that was now unlocked. It was really weird though. It's like there's this trail in my brain, but if I wasn't paying close enough attention to it, my brain would easily lose that neural path and jump back onto the old road it was more familiar with. Any small distractions at all, like a cell phone ringing in my pocket, would instantly throw my brain back to the old control algorithm and I would wreck. But at least I could ride it. My son is the closest person to me genetically, and he's been riding a normal bike for three years. That's over half his life. I wanted to know how long it would take him to learn how to ride a backwards bike, so I told him if he learned how to ride a backwards bike, he could go with me to Australia and meet a real astronaut. Are you gonna give up? No. Go ahead. This is how it starts. Look at this. This is such a big deal. Get up, you got it. Did you see his brain get it? So he hello, in, hello. how many weeks are we gonna do this? Two weeks? It goes, I think that's nine minutes, one. We haven't got nine minutes. But you get the picture, right? It's pretty amazing. So a couple of things you should know. Uh, obviously, he learned to write. Well, first of all, how amazing it is that his son, so he's young, only takes him three weeks to learn how to write it. it. Takes him eight months. He's an adult. Says something about our brains, right there. The second thing is he went back a year later, back to Amsterdam, uh, where it all started, and somebody gave him a normal bike, and he could not ride it. In fact, he rode the normal bike like he used to ride the backward bike. Right. So I want to talk to you today because I think he, he said this, he says, uh, knowledge is not understanding. He also said that sometimes you can't even change even though you want to change. And he also said that there are algorithms in our brain 
that have caused us to think a certain way. I'm going to talk to you today about, I think there are algorithms in the church that we have been doing things a certain way for so long that even though some of us want to change, some of us know we need to change, it's almost impossible for us to change. Once we figure out what we've got to do and we do it long enough, we'll get it. But it's yours and my default because it's too hard to learn a backward bike. It's far easier for us to stay the way we are. Now, how many of you, when you're watching that, depending on your personality, some of you were thinking, you know, so you type A people, driven like myself, task orientated, you were thinking, I absolutely could ride that bike. How many of you were thinking that? Don't worry about that, fool. Yeah, of course. I knew James would be. Yeah, I mean, anybody that wears that outfit to a, you know, has got to be able to do a backward bike. Um, and so uh, you guys, I can tell you, because I made the backward bike, but because I flew here, I couldn't bring it. So the regions that I've been able to drive to, I take the backward bike. And some of you have been in other dynamics where I've done this. And I've got people up here. And I can tell you, we've already done around 60 people, including right to my church. And you think you can ride it, but you cannot. No, don't you worry. You cannot. I think I can ride it. I've had a go several times, and I still think I can ride it, but I can't. Right? That's my personality. I just won't give up. Right? I still think, yeah, because I, I look at some fool trying to do it. Going, give me another go. You know? I can't do it. I cannot do it. Now, there'd be some of you, you'd be thinking, depending on your personality, you'd be thinking, well, why would I bother? I already know how to ride a bike. Right? How many were doing that? Just like, yeah, one at the back. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you. Thank you. The rest were lying, but thank you. Uh, then there's some of you are going, yeah, I just love watching people make fools of themselves. Who was doing that? Some of you were doing that. That's a, and, and you people pass the churches as well. So I don't know how that happened along the way. And so for us... The whole concept, and here's what happened. When I started to get to look into scriptures about unlearning, I realized that really, Jesus, everything Jesus taught was unlearning. So let's get, for example, let's go to Matthew 5 for a second. And so Matthew 5 is the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this, is, this is how it starts. I love this image. In Matthew 5, verse 1, I'm going to read it from the message. It says, when Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. And those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him, arriving at a quiet place. He sat down, taught his climbing companion, and this is what he said. Now, he says, he says things like this further down. He says things like, um, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. You know what that is? Unlearning. You've done it a certain way for so long. But now that I'm here, no longer do it that way. Do it this way. Here, now, now, this is what I like about this image. Let me, let's paint that picture for a moment. Here's what's going on. Jesus is doing miracles with the crowd. Everywhere he goes, in fact, that's why they're hanging around, because he's doing instantaneous miracles. Jesus decides he wants to go up a mountain. Now, here's what Jesus doesn't do to separate the crowd from the disciples. Jesus does not say, hey, everybody, just want to let you know, I'm going up the mountain, I'm going to take the disciples with me, and when we get there, we're going to do some teaching. He does not say that. Jesus knows one thing. He knows that when he starts to walk a mountain that's hard, difficult, or inconvenient, nobody's coming. He doesn't have to make an announcement. What he's hoping is that his disciples, the one he's trying to raise up, he's hoping they will get the picture and they will come. Thank God they did. But nobody from the crowd 
walk the mountain. Because most crowd people don't want to do it. If you're a leader here today under a leader, don't be the crowd. Be a mountain climber. Don't be the kind of leader where the senior pastor has to explain it five different ways, you know, give it a bit of frosting and a bit of sweetness, and then explain it again another 10 times, and then finally you decide to go the hard yards. Just recognize that leadership is just hard yards, and it's always climbing. Now, here, But here, that's not even the message. That was just for free. Here's what's really going on. Jesus gets to the top of the mountain. And when he starts to unlearn with the disciples, not once does he do a miracle. And I'm going to say something that's going to scare you today. See, I believe in miracles. But here's what I noticed about Jesus. He does instantaneous with the crowd, but he does process with the disciples. So, so for example, in uh, Matthew 5 verse 3, if you read it from the message, uh, it says, there it is. It says, so this is an unlearning statement. You are blessed when you're at the end of your rope. How many of you, just honestly, it's just us now, last time you were at the end of your rope, how many of you sat there, God, God, I just feel so incredibly blessed. This is one of the most blessed moments of my life. God, if you could keep me in a state of blessing by barely hanging on to the end of the rope for the rest of my life, that would be my desire, Lord. Well, that's rubbish. Nobody feels like that. But according to Jesus, blessed are those who are at the end of the rope. Why? Because less of you, there's more of God. Well, that's not normal. That's unlearning. Less of you, more of God. Unlearning. Huh. I can't believe it. So I think, you know, that, I think that interprets in the normal version about blessed are those who are poor in spirit. But just take poverty, for example. You know, I know it's talking about poor in spirit. But imagine uh, Kerry was, imagine, I mean, she's married to James. Imagine she's suffering financially. <laughs> Which she wouldn't. But imagine she was. And imagine Kerry is crying out to Jesus. She's a disciple. And she's saying, Jesus, we need you. We need a miracle in our finance. I think in this situation, Jesus would not put his hand on Kerry's head and say, in the name of myself, poverty, come out. I don't think he would. You know what I think he'd do? As a person who is disliked with Kerry, say, Kerry, you probably need to stop spending more than you earn. <laughs> is this like a prophetic moment right now? Yeah. I'm not known to be prophetic, but let's, let's, let's run it. <laughs> he, he might say, you know what, Kerry? I actually think you should get, have a budget. Right, because see, some people are, are, some disciples are asking for a miracle, and God wants to do a process in your life. He wants to say, "I'm not doing that. I'm not giving you that instant thing because you don't want to learn how to be successful in it. I'm not going to hand it to you just because you couldn't be bothered to find out what it means to get the principles that cause you to last a lifetime." And so, more often, so when you're not getting your instant miracle, I want to remind you today that maybe it's because God's treating you like a disciple, not a crowd. Just sometimes. I believe in miracles and I believe you can do it. But sometimes he's just saying, could you stop acting like the crowd? And could you just climb with me? You know how God teaches you, right? You know. So God teaches you by taking you to something you know to teach you about something you don't yet know. I'm very proud. I'm a builder, former builder. So I think in squares. and So God, the, the building site was a 
place where God taught me. So God would take me to places on the building site, things on the building site, and he would point to them and say, and what you know there, I'm going to tell you what you need to know about this. So for example, I, when I became a project manager, I was 22 when I became a project manager. I get my first $1.5 million building. My boss meets me on the block of land. It's, there's nothing on it. He hands me the set of plans and he says, I quoted 46 weeks. There you go. Let me know how you go. Worse, I open the plans. The first building I ever have to build at 22 years of age has got a curved wall. It's a semicircle. And I'm like, I can't. I've never even built a square one, let alone a curved one yet. So I'm standing there. I'm thinking to myself, oh, I don't know how to build this. I did do the course, but that was theory only. I never actually built a house in my whole life. Now I'm building a building. And I realized something. I, in that moment, I realized, well, I don't actually know how to do the whole thing. I just need to know how to do the first thing. I just need to excavate the footings, right? So then when I go into ministry and I become senior pastor of a large church, I'm overwhelmed. And God says, I just want you to go back to what you know because I'm going to show you with what you know what you don't yet know. You actually don't need to know how to build the whole church. You just need to know how to do this. We're going to focus on this. Because God takes you to what you know to teach you about what you don't yet know. That's how God works. So, all that having been said, can I take the last 15 minutes to talk to you about what I've been talking about across our whole state and what I think, how we should think about the future 10 years. Now, I'm assuming I know that I'm going to be state president for 10 years. Uh, I mean, you can vote me out next year. It's okay. But I need to, as far as strategy and future, think in terms of 10 years. Otherwise, we'll achieve nothing, right? So that's my thing. So I'm not being presumptuous. I'm not being precious. And this is not my campaign for the run into next year either. But I'm just letting you know. So I'm going to tell you I'm going to describe to you because I've been a Christian since I was six. I've been in the same church since I was 11. And I've watched churches and been and preached in churches all around the world. I think there's three, three types of things going on in three different generations. So let me, let me describe it this way first. So imagine, first of all, see, remember I think in terms of rectangles, right? I'm not an artist. I just draw rectangle squares and, of course, after the first building, the occasional circle as well. So my parents in the 60s and 70s, they're in a Baptist church, early 80s. They, there's a move of the Holy Spirit comes across Australia. Those, my parents get filled with the Holy Spirit, start praying in tongues. They're so excited about it, they can't wait to tell their Baptist minister. Yeah, 60s and 70s. Yeah, it's not good, right? It's not a good, I mean, Clearly they're blinded by their newfound passion. So they told their Baptist minister, good news, we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we pray in tongues. To which he says, bad news for you, you can leave the church. And he kicked them out of church. That's how I landed at Lighthouse. So in the 60s and 70s, bit of the 80s, there was a move towards the Holy Spirit. Let's call this season, the Holy Spirit. So there was a move towards the Holy Spirit and there's lots of good things. So what happened in that era is... Dead churches came alive, dead Christians came alive. People were getting saved all over the place. It was a move of God. So there was a move towards the Holy Spirit, some of the 80s as well. So in some ways, Annette and I, we're not old, but we're, you know, early 50s. I'm a grandparent, by the way. You're probably thinking, how can a guy so young? Anybody thinking that? 
No, come on, really, anybody? Oh, flip. What a, just, normally I get one person that's willing to lie for me on that occasion. So there's a move towards the Holy Spirit. So who, who knows this, that in every season of God, there's good things and there's bad things. So now let me just clear, because I don't want you to send me an email. There is nothing bad about the Holy Spirit, but in the hands of humans, strange things happen. So Nate and I grew up, we're just teenagers, kids, teenagers in our church. We are watching the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit was the most important value of our church. So what would happen is this, is apparently the downside of being filled with the Holy Spirit was that you didn't need skill or talent. It's going to get a bit ugly here for a while. Just hold on. And so for example, one of the pastor's wives in our church, she thought she could sing. And so she was wrong, by the way. Um, and so, but she was full of the Holy Spirit. So we would, uh, for some reason, they let her on stage. And she would stand, we, we were like 10, 12 years of age. And it was back in the day with this tape, tape cassettes. And she would stand on stage and she would say, press play. You know, so they press play. And then she would sing like a dying cat. Like no, got no talent whatsoever. But she's full of the Holy Spirit. So you let people with the Holy Spirit on stage because it's your highest value. So she would get halfway through that song and she would lose her place. And she'd say, stop, 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 stop. She'd say, rewind. And we're all sitting on our seats waiting. She's standing there. She'd, they'd rewind the tape. And then to our horror, she would re-sing the whole song again. But she's full of the Holy Spirit. We would get guys on stage who thought they were guitarists and they would have like two strings on their guitar so they got two strings and they would play because they were playing the spirit but I would be thinking as a 10 year old in it sitting there I would think to myself is I wasn't being critical I just was being an innocent 10 year old I just thought to myself is there any way we can get a little more talent and maybe a less holy spirit just even it up a bit lower one elevate the other so then what happens is, thank God, because we're sitting in that generation going, we love our church. We did. We honestly, we love our church, but we couldn't invite anybody. It was scary. So then the next generation, which is kind of like really, there's a bit of the 80s in the middle here, which is about the 90s and the noughties. Here, this generation, thank God for Hillsong, because they helped us do this, is excellence. So what we learned in this generation, who would have thought? What we learned was that you can have the Holy Spirit and excellence. Incredible. It's not either or, it's both. So then we figure out that, you know, what we should do is we said, if you're a guitarist and you're full of the Holy Spirit, you should buy four more strings. <laughs> and if you're a singer and you want to sing, but you can't, you should either stop or go get lessons. Hallelujah. Thank God for that era where we woke up. And so what we then did was we added lights, great atmosphere, good uh, furniture, atmosphere. We got all that right. And for 25 years, we've been excellent. And in fact, people from all around Australia were coming to our church because they're saying to themselves, you should see what they're doing in that place. But I'm going to mess you up because we're not here anymore. We're not. And, and see, there's a downside, right, every... So we figured this out. We got this. 
You could do both. But the downside of this is we start to believe the greatest myth of all, that if we could just get more coloured lights, people will come. If we got one guitarist, but I reckon in Tam, the Tamworth people would come if we had two guitarists. Yeah. <laughs> and a banjo. Yeah. Whatever you do in the country stays in the country, I guess. Or you might be thinking, if I could just preach better. I feel for churches, just between you and I, come close. It's a secret, not that close. Not why you're wearing that anyway. Uh, I feel for churches. Well, don't wear that and sit in the front. I'm going to be, I'm focused on it. That's my problem. And so, so I feel for churches who think this is the ultimate. How exhausting. Oh, oh my God, I just feel exhausted then. Because I used to, sometimes I, I'd preach a good message on Sunday, but I could tell everybody's expecting a better one the next Sunday. And then a better one the next Sunday. And a better one the next Sunday. You know what I tell the new people at our new people's lounge when they join us and we do a session? I say, listen, I want you to know something. I preach bad sometimes. In fact, probably regularly if you ask a few. Yeah, and if you're here based on the excellence of my preaching, you're going to get disappointed. In fact, I want to disappoint you before you get disappointed. Right, because I cannot live under a culture where I have to outperform my last Sunday. How tiring. How exhausting to do that. I want to live in a culture where there's more going on. There is the Holy Spirit. And so, by the way, before you email me, I'm not saying don't have the Holy Spirit. I'm saying a smart generation brings with them both of these things. Don't ignore them. You say, what's the good out of this? What's the good out of that? And you bring it in this. Here's where we are today. I don't think I'm going to write this. Particularly when I'm thinking squares. Discipleship. I often, if I'm talking to community audiences, I'll add it in there. Because it's not discipleship like you know it. Does this board flip over or turn around? Or, Oh. Hey, um, can somebody just... You got that now? You written that down? Oh, stay there for a second. So, come on, come and do it. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind rubbing that off, because I want to do my next little thing first. But let me just talk about that for a moment. So the first, first generation was a move towards the Holy Spirit. They're, oh, my. Now, why don't we have that in our church? Still an Holy Spirit. We must have skipped excellence. It's amazing. And so, don't mind me, I'm going to play with this for a little while. It's very, it's nice. Very good. So, we have to learn to disciple people who are not coming to Sundays. So let me draw it this way. You know, this, this thing I stole from John Iliano just made it better, actually. If you've been to a pastor's intensive, he loves his, he loves his highly detailed. So I would suggest this. Let's say this is people who are mature Christians on this side. There. Anybody have the same? I, I, who has a gift of speaking in tongues? Any, I have a gift of writing in tongues as well. Not many have it, but. I do. I just couldn't be bothered finishing the sentence. Okay, far from Christ. I'm going to show you by drawing a circle according to the NCLS stats. 
where ACC is on this spectrum. We call this a faith spectrum. Mature Christians, far from Christ. According to our 2017, I've just got the 2018, they look pretty much the same. Where we spend our time, energy, financial resource and focus. Are you ready? I'm not making, this is factual. I'm not making it up. This is where we spend our time. Right there. I'll give you a little bit on the left there because I didn't, I'm not good at circles, remember. So that's where we spend our time. In fact, I can tell you in 2017 that across ACC Australia, we, fought, we saw 47,620 people make this first-time decision for Christ. They came to our services, put their hand in the air, gave their uh, life to Christ. But I can tell you out of the 47,620 people who made decisions for Christ, that only 3,300 stayed in church. I'm going to tell you why. I have a theory. And because it's a theory, you can disagree with it. I can tell you that our generation, my pastor loved tent meetings. And so we would put our tent up in the middle of our city, JJ Kelly Park, every summer, stinking hot, 42 degrees, in a green canvas tent. And we'd do it for two weeks, every day, every night for two weeks, have a revival meeting. Everybody's praying for, you know, the wind of the Holy Spirit. We're just praying for a wind. It was that hot. Like, some, please, just let somebody let the air in, right? And so there we are, and Pastor Bill and that's dad would preach on sin. And uh, he would say, he would do altar calls, and he would say, right, I want all those who were thieves come to the front. So the thieves, I don't know why they did, but they came to the front like a, well, everyone's hanging onto their wallets and <laughs> keeping on that guy. When, uh, and, you know, thieves, and, I want all the adultery people. So they'd come forward. I'm like, what are you doing? You idiot. Your wife's there, you know. <laughs> He'd come forward. And, you know, I want all the fornicators, you know, I'm 12 years of age. I used to run to the front when they said that, fornication. And my wife, after about five times, I came forward for fornication. My, my wife, my mum, sorry. I wasn't married at 12, <laughs> believe it or not. Although I'm, yeah, look young. My wife, my mum, my mum would come to me and she said, Paul, do you know what fornication is? No. And then she explained it to me. I said, right, I probably won't go out in that altar call anymore. I'll probably just leave that one alone. That might be a bit... Embarrassing. I did develop a bit of a reputation after that, just quietly. <laughs> anyway, so my point is this. He would preach about sin and people would get saved. But see, you can't do that. I'm not saying there's not sin. But this generation's post-Christian. They don't believe in sin. And that's part of our problem. I'm not saying you preach it. Listen, this is what happens. In our current excellence model, we're inviting people that we've pretty much had not much relationship with We've done an outreach crusade where we've ridden, ridden out. You know, you've seen me do that, like, you've seen me do that, right? The, the drawbridge. So we do outreach, not engagement. We, we, we're supposed to immerse ourselves in our community, but we do castle mentality. Somebody goes, oh, haven't been out in the community for a while. We ought to put on an outreach. It's like castle mentality. So what, for, for outreach, you need a budget, a diary, and the fanatical few. The way we're going to reach our community is everybody, every day, all the time. So, so outreach is this. Lower the drawbridge. Haven't been out for a while. Everyone hop on their horse. Out in the community. Touch a few people. Thank God they didn't touch us. Back on our horses. Drawbridge back up. Go back to all the castle-like things we were doing before. We treat, we treat 
people far from Christ like a program. So, we can't do that anymore. So what we have to do is this. What we currently do under excellence thinking is we invite people from here. We invite them across to here. They hear a great message, great music. They say, this is awesome. Somebody teaches them about life. They say, I want that. But they don't really know what they were signing up for. And after a few weeks or a few months, they start to kind of pick up the vibe that they're not supposed to have the lifestyle they've got. Well, they might need to change it or adjust it. And so they say to themselves, that's not what I signed up for. I want my life and all that good stuff they're doing. So they go all the way back to here. I'm going to suggest to you that the future of the church, that the future of where we need to go is not just a move towards the Holy Spirit, not just a move towards excellence, but a move towards our community. And that we need to learn to disciple people from the day we meet them. And that we create a process that when somebody finally gets to the gathering, which might take a couple of years, by the way, which we don't like because everything's about numbers. In fact, I'm going to suggest our future is slower, not faster. I'm going to suggest it's not large, it's deep. It's connected. We, we, nobody in the whole time I've been in the ACC, 22 years, I've been asked for salvation stats, Holy Spirit stats, water baptism stats, attendance stats. Nobody has ever asked me, what are your discipleship stats? Never. That's a great commission because we assume all of those things are discipleship, but I'm not so sure. We believe the myth that a crowd, when we get a crowd together, we're discipling them. No, we're not. You can only disciple somebody when you bring them alongside you and they watch you live out your faith. Discipleship. So when we figure this out, and by the way, I haven't figured this out. That's what we're going to do over the next 10 years. We can figure this out. When people finally come to the gathering, we'll see true transformation happen in people's lives. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring faith or a follower of Jesus, there is a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to northwestchurch.com.au. And thanks again for listening.